We'll open your Bibles to James chapter 4, verses 1 to 6. Let me remind you that the closing hymn is 679. If you didn't hear the announcement earlier, it's the right name, the wrong uh, hymn number. It's 679. We'll close with it. It is so sweet to trust in Jesus. Our verses this morning from chapter 4, verses 1 to 6. Hear now the word of the Lord. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the Scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Father, we uh, humbly bow before you now, asking that your spirit would teach us from this your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, stories told of a pastor who did a series on marriage with his congregation, and when he came to the last sermon, um, after the service, he handed out wooden crosses to each married couple. He asked them to, in the course of his sermon, what he did is explain to them the important role of the cross, and so he thought the wooden crosses would help remind them and said, look, you need to take the wooden cross and, and put it in the room where you fight the most, and you'll be reminded of God's commands, and you won't argue much. And so after the service, he handed everybody a wooden cross. Well, one lady came up late in the service, probably waiting for everyone else to leave. And she had a voice of exasperation, and she looked at the pastor and said, Pastor, you better give me five of those crosses. <laughs> See, conflict is not limited to one room in the house. In fact, it's not limited to the house at all. Everywhere we look, we see conflict. One writer said, when we look at human society, we so often see, he says, a seething mass of hatred and despair. See, all relationships suffer some level of conflict. We see it in our families. We see it in our marriages, our friendships. We see it at work. We know nations rage against nation. Ethnic groups rage against ethnic groups. Religions rage against religions, and unfortunately, even Christians rage against other Christians. And see, that's what's most troubling of all, that conflict is found in the church, that the world, how sad it is, looks upon the church and sees this attitude of conflict that so obviously contradicts what we believe. It contradicts our confession. And so... What is it? What is it that can cause brothers and sisters in the Lord, people who truly love God and are to love their neighbor, what is it that causes us to be at odds with one another? 
And that is the question James will answer this morning. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? He's asking that question of you. What is it? What is it? He's probing again. Remember, James is a preacher, and he wants to get to the root of the problem. And so he's concerned with conflict, and he teaches us three things about it. He's going to share with us the cause of conflict. He's going to share with us the consequences of conflict and then the cure to conflict. So we'll look at all three. First, the cause. James asks, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? And here's his answer. Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? Is it not your passion? Is it not rooted in your affections? Is it not first found in your heart? How wonderful it would be if we could leave conflict behind in one room of the house, locked behind a a wooden cross, but it's not so. Wherever we go, we bring with ourselves our passions. See, James is saying, look, you can't put the blame anywhere else. You're not able to pass the buck here. It's not not safe to say, well, I, I didn't mean it. The devil made me do it. Some have said that. You can't blame your parents, your upbringing, your friends. James says the cause isn't others. The cause is your sinful hearts. Now, don't misunderstand. There is some conflict that's necessary Jesus himself faced conflict. Anyone who takes a stand on the truth will face conflict. If you oppose evil in our evil world, you you will bring upon yourself conflict. You'll bring upon yourself a battle. But James is obviously speaking here of evil or sinful, that is, conflict. And this conflict, James says, is caused by your passions that war within you. Now, the Greek word for passions has the simple meaning of pleasure. Uh, But with the connotation, the focus is the connotation of self-indulgence. It's sinful pleasure. Pleasure is not sinful uh, in and of itself, but a driving desire for pleasure is. That's how Jesus uses the word in Luke 8. He says, the seed of the word is choked out how? By the pleasures of life. Paul says in Titus 3, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures. And Peter has the same meaning in 2 Peter 2.13. They count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. And, And so what James is asking, that all the conflict that has plagued mankind since the fall comes from sinful desire for self indulgent pleasure that wars within us. That's what he's saying. That's the answer to his question. It's within us. Now, the the actual Greek word that we translate passions or pleasure here is we get our English word hedonism. Now, hedonism is someone, a hedonist is someone who loves the pursuit of pleasure. We talked about this when we looked at Solomon. Uh, This person, this type of person is driven by pleasure all of life, the very purpose for existence is to fulfill your passions. And if something gets in the way of that fulfillment, it must be eliminated. That's the hedonist. People are just a means to a pleasurable end. Now, some years ago, there were two books written 
that predicted or projected the future of America. Uh, the future, they had two opposite, but they were very equally chilling visions for the 21st century. You've heard of them. George Orwell wrote the book 1984. And he warned that our culture would be overcome by this externally imposed opposition. And in Animal Farm, he, he defined that opposition as communism or socialism. That was one of the visions. The second vision was cast by Aldous Huxley in his book, A Brave New World. And in that book, he portrayed the danger not from a, a socialistic or a communistic oppressor, he said, but as pleasure-giving technologies. What does he mean? Well, Orwell feared those who would ban books. Huxley feared there would be no reason to ban books because nobody would want to read them. Orwell feared we would become a, a captive culture. Huxley feared we would become a trivialized culture, preoccupied with worldly pleasures. Now, living as we do in 2023, we can understand Orwell's vision, uh, but there is no doubt that Huxley was right. We are a culture consumed by pleasure. We spend billions upon billions of dollars each year on the cheap replacement for the chief end of man. And that's what we do. And the tragedy, beloved, the tragedy is that this is all too often just as true in the church. For, for, for many, Christianity has become nothing more than a quick fix. Christianity, if you're going to attend church, if you're going to pay attention to the Bible at all, it, it, it's, it, it, it's not take up your cross and deny yourself. It's, it's, it's ten steps to a happy life. Our best-selling book is your best life now. Now, this life. And these are different visions for Christianity, and they're incompatible with a biblical vision. You see, you cannot glory in a suffering Savior who, who is crucified and, and also glory in the self-indulgent, self-seeking pleasures of this world. Either you're going to pursue the cross or you're going to be uh, pursuing the cravings of the flesh. And see, according to James... This man-centered, pleasure-centered theology, this Christian lust only leads to a disastrous end. And so the cause is from within. It's our passions from within. It's a, and it leads to the consequences of our conflict. And that's our second point. Maybe it'd be better to say the consequences of our inner conflict or the, the course of our inner conflict. Either case, you have a hedonistic lifestyle, and it doesn't actually lead to pleasure. You would think it would. A lot of people believe it, but it ends up leading to pain. It doesn't lead to comfort, well, in the long run, maybe in the short run, but in the long run, it leads to conflict. This is what is known, philosophically speaking, as the hedonistic paradox. What's that? Well... Once you get what you think will give you pleasure, once you've settled down and you've actually accomplished it, you find it's not enough. Again, we talked about this in our Ecclesiastic series. Uh, we, Rockefeller saying, if I just had a little bit more, 
Um, it, it ends up never satisfying. You're always hungering for more. You get your appetite wet, but you thirst. Your thirst is never quenched. This was true of the greatest hedonist that ever lived. You know who it is. We did a whole series on him, Solomon, or at least his book. Uh, Solomon, you remember, said that he tried everything to find meaning, and he pursued pleasure more than anyone ever did, and by the way, probably ever will. And he said, I looked on all my works of passions and pleasures. I tried it all, and behold, all was vanity and a striving after the wind. You will never be satisfied striving after pleasure. It'll give you momentary benefit, but it will always elude you. It will never fully gratify. I hope you understand that. It will only drive you to crave more, and, and you'll begin suffering the consequences of that behavior. James says, look, a a battle will begin raging in your soul. Selfish passions make you wage war within yourself, says James. And and then what happens is that inward war that you're not getting what you want and, and you're not finding fulfillment and you think the person on the television or in the magazine or your neighbor has it, what causes that 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 war within starts manifesting itself outwardly. Look at verses 2 and 3. You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive. Why? Because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions, your pleasures. See, this is the, the, the result of allowing your passions to run amok. You can almost visualize this person. They're in this hot pursuit for pleasure. But every time they they think they may get it, there's a roadblock. And they're getting nowhere. And and then frustration sets in and and a war wages within them. They need to satisfy their lust. And so when someone gets in their way, what do they do? They murder. Because it's that person keeping me from getting what I want. They covet something that maybe their neighbor has, and and they believe that that will satisfy them, but they can't attain it, so they're mad at their neighbor. They fight, and they quarrel. This is a man, James is painting, uh, painting, that is in in complete desperation. This person is at his wit's end. You can almost pity him. A, A great example of this is a compulsive gambler. A gambler craves riches. He, he needs riches. He always believes, right, this is how it works, that the next roll of the dice, just the next roll of the dice will win him his billions. The next turn of the cards will give him the satisfaction he craves. And yet we know that reality paints a different picture. Uh, compulsive gamblers have a higher rate of divorce as a direct result of their gambling. And, 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 and uh, they are often guilty of child and spousal abuse. Uh, one expert was commenting on this. They said, in, in a compulsive gambler's most desperate phase, they will do anything to gamble. 
They start stealing from parents. They start stealing from spouses. They'll get money anyhow, anywhere. They'll embezzle. They'll steal. There has been documented cases in Atlantic City, extreme cases, yes, but they're still true, that they could not get the money they needed, so they were willing to sell their infant children. That's how desperate. That's the image James is painting. But understand, he's not talking about a gambler. He has the ordinary Christian in mind. And, and even as a believer, if passion for pleasure is your goal, you will reap the consequences. A life dominated by pleasure has inevitable consequences. We cover two, right? Relational discord, uh, this destructive behavior. It brings dissension, disagreement, disorder into the church, fights and quarrels, envy. It's divisive. And so there's this relational discord. There's this disturbing behavior or consequences if, you, if your life is driven by passion. Here's another, James says. It, it deadens your prayer life. It, look at the end of verse 2 and, and verse 3. You do not have because you do not ask. And then when you do ask, you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. See, a Christian that's consumed with self, a a Christian who's consumed with the pursuit of self-indulgent pleasure rarely finds time to pray. And the reason is that they realize their requests are so selfish that they can't bring themselves to go before the throne of God and actually utter the words out loud. Do you ever find yourself, you know, praying for your meal and realizing you're at McDonald's? It's like, how do I ask God to bless this? Well, a a person who's uh, uh, living this way but has a little sensitivity to the Spirit, remember James is talking to believers, it won't find it easy to to pray for what they really want. That is, Lord, give me a Lamborghini. Lord, give me a Shoreham. Lord, give me this. Give me, give me, give me, give me, give me. And God says, I don't answer that. Why? Because the true end and aim of prayer is thy will be done. Not your will be done. Um, it, my desire is be satisfied is not the end of prayer. And so the craving for pleasure shuts the door to prayer. It brings discord. It's destructive. It destroys your prayer life. And fourth, it disrupts and disturbs your relationship with God. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. It disrupts and uh, disturbs not strong enough. The the pursuit of pleasure makes you spiritually unfaithful. That's the image here. God desires an intimate relationship with us. But our love for the world, our love for pleasure results in spiritual adultery. That's the imagery. James is kind of like an Old Testament prophet now. In the Old Testament, uh, the, the prophets would call out Israel for pursuing other gods. The prophets would say, you're prostituting yourselves to other gods. And so the the prophets would call them to account. Well, James is doing the same thing. Like Israel, those who seek pleasure first and foremost have pursued another spouse. They no longer are married to God, as it were. Their God now is pleasure. And so we, like Israel, must hear the indictment. You adulterous people. 
That's the consequence of pursuing worldly pleasure. You can't have it both ways. Friendship with the world is enmity with God. And so that's another consequence. It disrupts, it disturbs your relationship with God. You know, fifth, it also disturbs or or disrupts your understanding of Scripture. It causes you to deny the Word of God. Look at the beginning of verse 5. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the Scripture says? I'm living this certain way, and James is saying, Oh, I guess you don't realize that the Bible says this here. Is that what you're saying? A Christian who attempts to live their life in the pursuit of pleasure needs to distort the Scripture to do it. And that's why these uh, televangelists that are telling you that the goal is riches distort the Scripture. They have to. Because a person who pursues pleasure as their chief end really can't believe what the Word of God says. Can a hedonist really believe a book, the Bible, that promotes humility and suffering as a way of life? You are to take up your cross, not take up the cash. Can a self-indulgent, self-centered person really believe the Bible when it says the ultimate example for all of life is a Savior who gave up glory in heaven a Savior who humbled Himself, a Savior who became a man, a Savior who died for sinners on a cruel cross. That's our example. And you're saying pleasure's the goal? Do they not grasp? Do they not comprehend? Uh, uh, that How utterly divisive. It's disturbing. It's deadening, as we said. It's destructive. It distorts a life of indulging passion. That's the outcome. Do you see the consequences of having even a hint of self-centered passion? And so, we need to do anything we can to avoid it, uh, that kind of life. We need to say no to our sinful uh, passions and yes to God. We need to say no to our sinful pleasures and yes to Christ. We need to say no to the flesh and yes to the Holy Spirit. We need to starve our sinful cravings. And beloved, we know that starving our sinful cravings is not something we can do on our own. It's something from within. Yes, we could put a wooden cross in a room and we can lock the door and we can avoid conflict. You just don't talk to anybody. It won't be long until you start arguing with yourself, but, but you, you can avoid that. But it'll never win the inner war, will it? it? It just never will. And so what we need is a cure. And that leads to our third point, the cure for conflict. We had the cause, the consequences. Here's the cure. Verse 6, he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. The cure is God's grace. He gives more grace, grace to the humble. What does Paul say? Where sin abounds... Even pleasure-seeking sin, a hedonistic sin, where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more, Romans 5, 20. And throughout this passage, we have encountered the grace of God. It doesn't seem it because it's kind of hidden from the negativity that's found in the passage, but it's there. It's found actually in the contrast. I think it's important that you remember this whole passage is written to believers, 
they're being accused of committing spiritual adultery. They're, they're being warned. And so if we, if we as believers commit a spiritual adultery, then it implies something, doesn't it? And that we've been chosen by God to be His beloved bride. God's gracious passion is to have an intimate relationship with us. That's the grace of election. And if James here is warning us about being God's enemy, then it implies that we have been reconciled to Him. God's gracious passion is to have a friendship with us. That's the grace of reconciliation with God through Christ. And if we're guilty of distorting and denying the Scripture, it implies that God has graciously revealed the truth to us and that the Word of God is a lamp to our feet and a light for our path. God's gracious passion is to guide us the grace of revelation. So you have the grace of election, the grace of reconciliation, and the grace of revelation. But probably the greatest indicator of God's grace in our passage is found in verse 5. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the Scripture says He yearns jealously over the Spirit that He made to dwell in us? Now, that passage is difficult to interpret. There's some different translations. It could mean um, our human tendency to be envious. This is how the NIV translates it. The spirit he caused to live in us envies intensely. That's how the NIV. Or James is referring to God's jealousy, which is our translation. And I believe it's the second one here. It has a little nuance. What I believe James is saying is that our God is a jealous God who opposes anyone or anything that seeks to draw us astray. See, James, verse 4 here, warned against spiritual adultery. And so verse 8 naturally refers to God's holy jealousy as our husband. He is a jealous husband who will not tolerate any rival. And if we take the Holy Spirit as the Holy Spirit, as the Spirit as the Holy Spirit, rather than the human spirit, then we realize that James is saying that God has, has placed His Holy Spirit in the believer to combat this tendency we have to spiritual adultery. God has claimed us as His own, and He's done so by graciously sealing us with His Spirit. And so do you see what James is saying? God stands graciously waiting for the rebellious to forsake their pursuit of pleasure and and, and direct their attention back to Him. He gives more grace. He provides the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in order to win our affection. God will never let us be gratified with the world only. He just won't do it. He's a jealous God who is jealous for you. He will never let you be satisfied apart from Him. He has so constituted things in this world that without Him, you will always remain restless. St. Augustine, our heart is restless until it finds its rest in thee. Read the Confessions. You'll see a testimony of this. Even this reveals God's grace. It's the grace of the curse. You know, you remember in the garden after the fall, God cursed the man and the woman. 
And each curse, he made it impossible for us to find complete fulfillment. We couldn't find complete peace anymore or satisfaction in our relationships or work. Enmity was brought. They had this perfect relationship, and then they covered themselves. They could no longer feel free to be themselves anymore. And, and God did that, and it was gracious because apart from God, we, we, we shouldn't be able to find complete satisfaction. And so he put that enmity there, thorns and thistles, pain and childbearing. All our pursuits have been sovereignly frustrated by our jealous God. Why? Why do this? It seems so counter to health and wealth gospel. It seems so counter to everybody saying you're supposed to be happy all the time. It seems so counter. And the reason is because God's saying, look, I love you so much. And I know that you can never find satisfaction like you can find in me. And so I want all your life. I want it all. I don't just want it on Sunday. I want it every day of the week. And I've given you the Holy Spirit to indwell in you, to take up total occupation. God is a jealous lover who longs for you with holy jealousy. That's God. Oh, we always want to invent a God of love. What we really mean is, I just want a God that's going to let me do what I want and leave me alone. And God's saying, well, you'll never find satisfaction there. I love you too much. I love you so much, I'm going to frustrate the things of this world so that you'll turn to me and you will find full satisfaction. And so let me say, if you're here and you think this full satisfaction will come by just showing up on Sunday, you are wrong. You, 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 if you don't know God through Christ, if, if you don't have a personal relationship with Him, if, if His Holy Spirit does not indwell you, if you haven't tasted this grace or sensed His love or affection, let me just say, as God's ambassador, be reconciled to God. Even now it can happen. You'll never be satisfied on the path you are presently pursuing. I know it's true. You know it's true. Oh, things may be going well now. They may. I mean, when we look out into the world, can we just be honest for a second and say, and we see what some people's lives are like that are unbelievers? It looks pretty nice. But help put it in perspective. Someday they're going to die. And they're not going to take their yacht with them. And they're going to die. And so you know it's true. It hasn't worked. You'll always fall short. It will never work. God guarantees it. Solomon proved it. It'll only end in heartache and pain. And that can change right now if you reconcile to God through Jesus Christ. If you trust him alone by faith. If you receive his grace, the grace that's displayed on the cross. If, if you understand that, that I am a sinner, I do seek pleasure, my heart is evil, and Christ came, he became man, he died on the cross to take away my sin, he rose again that I can be reconciled to God, he gives me his righteousness, he places his Holy Spirit in me, and now I can live for him. And the Bible says it this way, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Trust 
in Christ, saved from the penalty of your sinful pleasures, saved from the punishment that you deserve. You deserve his wrath. He gives more grace in Christ. But what about the believer? Because that's who James is addressing. Well, it turns out that the wooden cross is the answer, but not the physical one there that you place on a shelf or wear around your neck, the real one where Christ was lifted up and nailed for your sins. You look to the cross too. The grace of God for the believer is found at the cross, not just in the past when we first believed. Maybe somebody did that today. But today, for the here and now, you need the grace of God just as much today as you needed then. And you find it at the cross. And when you look upon it, I'm not asking you to look to God's commands. Oh, we have to do that. We have to obey the commands. And I'm not asking that here. I'm not asking you to take home a wooden cross and, and believe that you can do it. No, I want you to, uh, uh, to look to Christ. I want you to think of his grace because the grace of God is not more clearly seen than at the cross. That's where we see his love. Remember the covenant vows you made, believer, when you became a Christian, when you believed? You are the bride of Christ. James is saying, so give up your adulterous pursuit of pitiful pleasures. As I said to the unbeliever, I say to you, you will never find satisfaction there, believer. Rather, give your life over to the pursuit of God. Give your life over to the pursuit of holiness. Blessed. Remember what Jesus says. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. Let's pray. Father, forgive us for pursuing such uh, pitiful pleasures and forgetting that our chief end is to enjoy you forever. Give us of your Holy Spirit. Turn our hearts towards you. In Christ's name, amen.